All right, well, good morning. Good to see you again. Uh, we'll go ahead and start getting going, while, even while they're still handing some stuff out. Uh, as we take it to the next part of the story, uh, so if you want to turn ahead, we'll be in Genesis chapter 3, mainly this morning. Um, it's fitting we had a, a thunderstorm overnight into this morning. I'm, I'm pretty fascinated by weather, severe weather, uh, even, even natural disasters are pretty fascinating to me, just seeing the, the power of creation on display, even, even in a, sometimes it's a negative sense, natural disaster, um, it's pretty amazing to, to see. And uh, does anybody know where the most, the, the most powerful earthquake in the continental U.S. happened? It's not Alaska, not D.C., no, it actually happened in the Mississippi River Valley, yeah, down by southern uh, Missouri, this is about, about 300 miles from where I'm, I live, so it's probably, I guess, about 500 miles from here, but um, southern Missouri by a town called New Madrid, and in 1811 to 1812, over a period of five months, there were a couple thousand earthquakes that registered there, but there are a couple significant ones. There are three major ones, uh, 7.7 to 8.6 on the Richter scale. And uh, those were felt in an area of the United States that was 200 times the size that was felt um, during the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Significantly bigger. Uh, it was said that bells, church bells in Boston were ringing because of these earthquakes. And Dolly Madison in the White House was awoken because of these earthquakes. Uh, when it happened, the, the fault line is right in the river valley. And so all the turbulence there, it really uh, it destroyed the closest town, New Madrid. Uh, but for a couple hours, it actually caused the Mississippi River to flow backwards. The water was flowing back upstream, back north. There were islands that were in the middle of the Mississippi there that are now gone. Uh, and the, the course of the river is changed so that the boundaries between Missouri and Kentucky don't match up anymore. Um, but they're, they're still there. They just don't match the river anymore. Uh, there's a whole new lake that's been created. This was a, uh, a destruction of things. Uh, and also a reshaping of the landscape that happens. And we see that with lots of, lots of natural disasters. Uh, we got to, some of us, uh, but most of us by virtue of pictures at least, get to see something like that with like Mount St. Helens. We could see what it was before uh, and what was after. Oh, sorry, I have a picture here. Not super helpful, but that's the, the an illustration of the river itself. Yeah, spot on. Yeah, thank you. Um, we, uh, we only really, with this, we only really get to see what happens after, but sometimes we, we get to see the before and the after effects of something significant like this, uh, a major natural disaster. Um, yesterday, we were talking through Genesis 1 and 2, that was the before. Now we're going to get into the after uh, and see what has changed, what has been reshaped by this major natural disaster universal disaster of the fall of man when sin is brought into the world. So like I said, we're mainly going to look at Genesis 3, see specifically what happens in this fall of man, 
Uh, but then we're going to get open up a little bit broader and see uh, throughout the rest of kind of the Old Testament, uh, what are the beginnings of the signs of how God is going to promise to change this. Uh, so let's look at Genesis 3, and to keep with our the flow of our outline, looking at what God does first, and then man, uh, we're kind of going to go backwards, uh, because God speaks again in this text, right? Uh, but he is not the one initiating the action. He is actually going to speak in response to man's action here, man's sin. So if you look with me, Genesis uh, chapter 3, we're going to look first of all in verse 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all of the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. She shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I'm going to talk more about that specific uh, text in a minute. But God is speaking here. What, what is God speaking? If you put it into one word, what is he speaking? He's speaking a curse. So where God's actions before God's speaking was creating out of fiat, now God's words are cursing. He is cursing the earth that he just created. I'll read a few more verses here. Um, significant that even while he's cursing, there are signs of hope, and we're going to pick up on that as we go. If you'll go a little bit ahead of that part with me into verse 9, uh, before he speaks the curses, what is he doing? What is, uh, pay, think what, while we're reading this, what is he doing before he curses? Verse 9, but the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave, me, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So God is speaking again. What is he speaking here? Questions. Yes. God is asking questions. Is God asking questions because he doesn't know? No. Why is God asking questions? Yes. Many of you are parents. Have you ever asked a question of your child, that you already know the answer to, but you need them to know the answer to the question. Yes, that is what God is doing here. Um, God is revealing even while he is asking questions, and it's also a sign of God's grace, God's patience. Um, did, did he know automatically when they sinned? You better believe it. Uh, did he smite them the moment they sinned? From the day that you eat of it, you will surely die? No. He goes and he seeks them out, and he asks them what they did. He gives them an opportunity to respond, to repent of their sin. This is a mercy of God. We just sang a few moments ago in the song, uh, he's rich in love and he's slow to anger. God is being slow to anger by asking them, first of all. Then also in this category of what God is doing, uh, let's go back in the story to, or toward the end of the chapter, Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. 
Another thing that God is speaking here. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God has cursed He had a little indication of hope, blessing, even grace in this, but now he is speaking uh, a banishment. He is banishing them. Uh, Previously, we saw that he created so that he could dwell with man. Now this dwelling with man is no longer possible. They must be removed from the garden. Uh, This banishment, though, this movement away from man dwelling with God, again, God is the one that is officially saying this, but he is doing this in reaction to man. What did man do, first of all, that separated them from God? They disobeyed, and then they did one other thing. They hid. They were the first ones that removed themselves from God's presence. They hid from God's presence. Yes, we read that in verse 8. So that's what God is doing in this situation Over manuscript now is written death, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Um, Most of us know this is part of the story. Um, We we know about death, and uh, sometimes we, we think of ourselves as maybe our culture is somewhat insulated from death. We know we don't see dead bodies very often. We're pretty sensitive about it. Uh, We're even to the point where it's almost uncomfortable to even say the word, that person died. (laughs) We almost, you know, so it's nicer and politer to say they passed away or they passed. And we're we're kind of insulated from that reality or maybe we're sensitive to it. Uh, Other cultures were pretty, in other times and places, pretty frank about it. Uh, They they understood it. Um, Either way. We shouldn't sugarcoat the reality of death coming into this world. Uh, death is a bad thing. Uh, it is something that was not supposed to happen. Um, it is the end of something that was created to be good. And, uh, and it brings, uh, it's one of the, the most significant parts of the curse, bringing the weight of the curse on us. Um, again, They didn't die immediately. That's evidence of God's grace. He said, from the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Uh, They did not perish that instant. Uh, In what way then did they still die? Is God's word still true? I'm sorry? Yeah, so death is understood as a, a separation. The physical death we have is a separation of our soul from our body. Our body is done. The separation that happens here is... Uh, man from God, and also what we understood to be a spiritual death. Man's soul is dead, unable to do the good things that he was created to do, which we'll see developed later on. Um, Even with this giant stamp of death now looming over man, I do want to point out a significant, I think, a sign of Adam's hope. Uh, he's, he, and Adam, he and Eve are, are banished from the garden. 
um, but they are not entirely hopeless. And, and what I mean by that, if you look at Genesis 3, verse 20, even as they're being banished, the man called his wife's name Eve. This is actually the first use of Eve. Up to this point, she was woman or his wife. He called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Uh, a belief, I think, still in the promise that, that God gives here, uh, that there will still be life that comes out of this, that this is not just going to be the story of death. Let's look, though, at man's responsibility being the image of God. Uh, what has changed now? What has been reshaped in this landscape? Man's responsibility to be a steward. I'm sorry, we'll, keep, we'll stay there. Man's responsibility to be a steward. They were supposed to fill the earth, right? Uh, in the curse, we didn't read this verse yet, back in 16, verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth your children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What happens now to man's ability to reproduce and fill the earth? That specific thing is now cursed. Man's ability, woman's ability to produce offspring is cursed. Not impossible, but now significantly harder, now more filled with pain. Man was supposed to work and keep the garden, was supposed to have dominion over the earth. Um, if you remember back in the creation account yesterday, man was formed out of what? The dust of the ground. Um, sorry, that's jumping ahead on there. What am I trying to say here? Well, let's read that. He formed out of the dust of the ground. We read in verse 19, You will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. A sign of the frustration of man's responsibility to have dominion over the earth is that he will return to the earth. He will actually be submitted to the earth. Earth, the dust, will have the victory over man for the time being. Uh, it will be one of frustration. A couple verses before that, um, starting in verse 17. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of the face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Who has a garden? Does anybody garden at home? How many times this year have you pulled weeds out of that garden? <laughs> yeah. Uh, my wife and I have a garden we're working on. Um, we created a new garden for uh, Christy's. She's trying to build a cut flower garden just for that. And it is not easy. The dirt is hard. There's so much clay in it. The weeds are there. Uh, we also have deer that love to come and eat our, our food and rabbits and chipmunks. Um, we are toiling and we're barely eating of it. Um, and that is just a, a very small part of the curse, uh, but it's a very real part that we see. Um, so man's ability to work and keep 
the earth, to have dominion over it, is frustrated, it is harder, is it still possible? I don't think so. We read all the way in Romans 8, which Logan quoted for us last night. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Creation is going to be futile, ultimately futile in our attempts to oversee it. Uh, We can master it a little bit. We can actually grow some crops. We can have a little bit of dominion. It's going to be hard, but we are never going to fully accomplish it. Uh, And then another verdict on the situation from 2 Corinthians 4. We'll be back in 2 Corinthians 4 in a couple days. But uh, it says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And that's talking about something unrelated, but in, in the aside, it's talking about Satan as the God of this world. Our responsibility, man's responsibility of being the prince, the, the supreme over this earth, has been lost. Uh, and for the time being, uh, Satan has taken, stepped into that void and uh, is in some degrees trying to control things. So we are struggling. We will return to dust. Uh, A couple weeks ago, my wife and I got to go to a concert, um, one of our new favorite bands, the Arcadian Wild. And I'm going to try not to quote every one of their lyrics, but um, one of their lyrics in a song about the fall itself, uh, they, they say this, I was loved more than anything, but I kissed the dust. I was crowned over everything, but I kissed the dust. Uh, Of course, Adam and Eve did that, uh, but us in Adam, us in that place would have done the same thing. Uh, And every time we sin, we choose the dust over the love and everything that God has already given us. So our ability to be stewards of the earth uh, is, is frustrated, it is harder, What about our ability to obey? Uh, We're talking about this. I want to really zoom in on what happens with Adam and Eve. So let's read the the text, Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Uh, And look what's happening there with Adam and Eve and their obedience, their disobedience, their sin. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Where there was supposed to be obedience, adherence to just just one command, there is clear disobedience that we will see in the rest of the story of human history sets up a whole chain of disobedience for every person that is ever born. But while we're here... Seeing what is happening with Adam and Eve gives us a few nuggets about what is going on in the human heart when it comes to sin. There's some just little little truths here, not really little, big truths, uh, that show us what is the DNA of sin. 
One of them is, uh, again, this idea of revelation. Man was created to be a revelation receiver. Remember, we saw that, to hear God's voice. This narrative starts off with verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty, and he said to the woman. The woman starts listening to someone else. Uh, Again, the Arcadian Wild starts off their song, I heard a second voice. That's the beginning of the problem. I heard a second voice. We were created to listen to one voice, but all of a sudden I hear a second voice. So we hear the woman is listening to the serpent. But then who else does she listen to? Herself. Yes, she listens to the serpent, which corrupts what she knows about God and what he said. Uh, But then we read down in verse 6, that when the woman saw with her own eyes the tree was good for fruit and all of these things that she thought, she was listening to herself. Uh, That's a significant pattern of, of sin for every human being. We don't listen to the one who creates all things and tells us who we are and what we're supposed to be. We listen to other voices. We listen to the wisdom from below. And sometimes that's a voice outside ourselves, but sometimes it's a voice inside ourselves too. We're listening to the wrong, we're listening to the wrong voice. Listening to that wrong voice caused Eve to doubt God's goodness. Uh, the, the serpent asked, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He knew he didn't say you shouldn't eat of any tree, uh, but he was trying to highlight God withholding something from them. And that confused Eve. She said, yeah, God said we couldn't eat of it. But then she also said, neither shall you touch it, uh, which is not what God said. Uh, but then she looked at this tree And it says that she saw that it was good for food, that it was delight to the eyes, which is exactly what it describes every other tree of the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. All of those trees were good for food and a delight to the eyes. But now she's looking at this one tree that God said no. And now she's saying, no, I want that to be good for food for me. It's a delight to my eyes. And she is wanting it. She's thinking God is withholding this good thing from me. Uh, Another phrase from from the Arcadian wild, you gave me all your love, but I thought there was more. They had every other tree that they could have eaten from, but they just wanted that one more thing. And that is us, too. Another important part of seeing what's going on in sin here is that it has to do with desires, something in our heart. The Bible talks about our heart as a place where we love and we want things. And those things cause us to act in certain ways, those desires. And she is showing us what we are like. She's showing us wanting something that is being kept from us, wanting something that we don't have, and then wanting to be the one that decides, you know what, I'm just going to do that. She is desiring, I, I think, to be able to say, that is good for me. The knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, is described as being a, if you eat it, you will know good and evil. And there's a a sense of knowing in that word, of understanding, uh, but there's also a sense of determining in, in that word, knowing good and evil. And I think we see that on display with Adam and Eve. They didn't, 
she didn't want to just say, okay, yeah, God said that's good and that's not good for me to have. She wants to be the one that determines, no, this is good for me to have, and so I will take it and eat it. Uh, and that's a temptation for all of us at any level, uh, but it's a, it's a major message that we are getting in our culture. You determine what is best for you. You just live your truth. That is not what God created us to do. God is the one who said, this is good and this is not. Do this, don't do this. This is who you are. Uh, but we are told the voices outside of us, the voices inside of us, I should be the one who says what is good for me, and then I will go and take it. One other thing I want to point out about the nature of sin, there's a lot more that we could say about sin in our hearts and in our lives, uh, but we also see here that this is a, a good example uh, when, when they are receiving the curse and when God is speaking to them, asking them questions rather, before the curse. Adam and Eve's response to this indicates uh, the, fir the first sign that, that man sees his problem as outside of himself, right? God comes to them, God comes to Adam first and said, uh, did you eat of the tree? What does Adam say? No, the woman you gave me. Um, so God is kind of pushing on the problem. Did you eat of the tree? And Adam's like, no, the problem is not me. It's, it's someone else. And when he points at Eve and pushes on the problem, she said, no, the problem is not me. It's outside of me. And you will see that throughout our culture, throughout the world at large. We are told the problem is not inside you. The problem is what's happening outside you. And the solution is inside you. Uh, the Bible is going to show us the problem is inside us. It's the, the desires of our heart. And the solution is nothing that we can do. It has to come from outside of us. It's the exact opposite. The problem is in us, and we have to have an outside solution, an alien solution, something that is not from us. So this sets up a chain, a history of disobedience throughout mankind. The other aspect of man's image of God is worship. Do you see worship at all in, in this passage, in this text, the situation of uh, the fall of man? Self-worship. Self yeah. Adam and Eve. Eve primarily is the, 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 the main focus of, of this choosing the fruit. She wanted what she wanted. Um, worship is the, the desire of, uh, of the heart. Worship is beholding and becoming. She, she beheld not God and his truth. She beheld the fruit, right? She was worshiping this created thing, uh, and she acted because of that. She acted in this sinful way because of it. Uh, beholding and becoming, uh, the, the idea that we become like what we worship, uh, the fact that she listened to the voice of the serpent, what then happened? She acted like the serpent. One more line from Arcadian Wild. Maybe, I don't know, maybe there are more. <laughs> One of their lines is, I believed the viper and I grew a pair of fangs. They listened to the voice of the serpent and then they turned on each other and they were blaming each other. Instantly, they were like the serpent that they had listened to. So the beholding and becoming is now corrupted and it's turned 
so that we are not like imitating God. We don't naturally imitate God. We imitate the serpent and sin. When we put all these things together, we look back at what we talked about yesterday, the whole beginning, the creation, what man was created to be, and then we understand how everything has changed here. Um, I just want to pause a minute and think with you. These, these things are significant in helping us understand what happens in our world. If you don't start with these things, if you don't start with these two chapters of human history, and you just jump into the story and you look at people, how are you going to answer the question, what, who are people? What are we supposed to be? What is wrong with us? Why are we not better people? If you don't have these first two chapters of, hum, of the story, how are you going to answer that problem? How are you going to answer those questions? You're going to come up with a lot of different solutions, and some of them have some rings of truth to them. Uh, but only God's story tells us who we're supposed to be. Only God tells us what a normal human being is supposed to be. Uh, I get to spend a lot of time in counseling, and um, the, the range of issues that, that we get to, to spend time talking about is vast, uh, but you take any one of them. You take uh, My wife and I spent a, a long time, a couple years ago, counseling with a, a teenage girl who had anxiety and depression. And, and I asked her, um, how do you know you're depressed? Well, people are telling me I, I shouldn't be this depressed for this age. So, okay, well, how depressed should a person your age be? What's the baseline for that? Are, do you just know you're depressed because you're more depressed than the average human? And you know you're not depressed anymore because you're less depressed than the average human? That's a pretty terrible baseline, right? <laughs> Only God's word tells us what a normal human being is supposed to be. And then tells us why we're so messed up. And we get to the rest of the story, how to fix that. We're looking at the problem here. And Steve said, James uh, asked the question, how's God going to make me whole again? Only God can tell us where we go from here to get back to where we're supposed to be. Uh, so whether it's issues of, of mental health or psychology or the racial situations and tensions in our world or gender dysphoria or tensions over what really is marriage and complementarianism and egalitarianism, only God's word tells us what a normal human being is supposed to be, why we're messed up, and how to fix it. All right, let's move on. We've looked really focused in on Genesis chapter 3 here. Uh, now, before we get to the, the threads part, I want to zoom out a little bit and look ahead and continue on looking for, for God's promises kind of throughout the, the Old Testament. We, we already saw that there's a sign of God's promise in Genesis 3, um, that it isn't all doom and gloom, it isn't all judgment, it doesn't all end here. Uh, we're going to look at how that continues to build in the story. Sorry, though, before we, before we go, though, we have to go back to verse 15, because uh, this really is the center of God's promise. God asking questions and being patient 
is, is a good sign of that, but it really centers on God's promise, Genesis 3, verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is speaking to the serpent. He says that there will be continuing hostility to the, between the serpent, Satan, his spirit, demons, and the offspring of woman, all of mankind. There will continue to build that hostility throughout human history. But there will become a point where it will come to a head and it will come to a point when the offspring of the woman, her, his heel will be bruised, but at the same time, the head of the serpent will be crushed. There's a promise that the serpent will be crushed. Kevin DeYoung's book for kids, the, the biggest story, telling the story of the Bible, uh, called, you know, this is the, the promise of the snake crusher. There is a promise that someone will crush this snake that brought sin into the world. That's all Adam and Eve are given. That's just these few words, this little idea, this little nugget. This is not the end of the story. There is going to come a time when the, the serpent will be crushed. And I think Adam and Eve are hoping. And then everything is going to be back to right. That's going to build as we go on. Um, so after this, after they're out of the Garden of Eden, can you think of any other promises in the Old Testament, that God makes to indicate there's this other stuff coming, that there's an end to the story, there's a snake crusher coming. Okay, he covers Adam and Eve with the skin of the lamb. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So there is an indication, yes, before Adam and Eve leave the garden, uh, they tried to cover themselves. The, the shame of their sin, they tried to cover themselves, and it does not, does not work. So God provided a covering for them, and no surprise, and this is going to be a, another thread we continue to follow, it required the death of something, required blood to be spilt, and required probably a lamb, the skin of something, to cover their sin. Yeah. Anything else? What else promises God has made? It's a major promise a couple chapters ahead of here. Nine chapters ahead of here. Yes. Who's that promise to? Abraham. Abram at that point. Abraham and Sarah. Excuse me. Sorry. Um, God says, I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the nations of the world shall be blessed. What is happening there? Something's going to happen with Abraham and his family that's going to do what? Spread goodness all over the whole earth. Does that sound like anything? Sounds like the dominion mandate, right? There is a sign that that is going to come back and it's going to be finished. Okay, anything else? He'll never flood the earth again. Yeah, uh, there's a sign that uh, with the, the flood, another fitting day for that, right, with the rain, um, that God will never flood the earth again. Uh, really cool sign there, Um God flooded the whole earth, saved just Noah and his family on the ark. Uh, and then after that, God promised that he would never flood the earth. How did he make that promise? Through 
with the rainbow. Um, the word in Genesis doesn't actually say rainbow. God says, I have put my bow in the clouds. And it's a war bow. The word is for a war bow. Because um, just before that, he had been bringing judgment on the earth with the rain, with the flood, right? He said, no, I'm going to retire from that. I'm going to hang my bow up. Uh, but he, he's not going to never judge again. Judgment is coming. Uh, but where is this bow now aimed? This bow is not aimed again at man. It is aimed up at God himself. A slight, I think, indication that God intends to resolve this again in the future by being, bringing the wrath on himself. Any other promises, things that you have seen that you can think of? Yeah. The Davidic covenant, a future kingdom, that there will be, there will be a king to rule on the earth. Uh, and, and the king and kingdom and, and covenants, those are all different themes and threads that we could follow. Uh, we just can't follow all of them. So if, if you want to follow those sometime on your own, I encourage you to do that. Uh, but it does kind of overlap. Um, there, the the uh, idea of dominion mandate will be kind of concluded with someone actually ruling, with the king ruling on the earth. So God continues to speak promises. If you think of any more, you can add them in, but I'm going to focus a little bit. God speaks promises. He does promise that he will dwell again. In what ways does God promise that? The new covenant, before we get to that though, when they, he brings his chosen people out of Egypt, in Exodus 25, God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. What do we call that? Tabernacle. Tabernacle is this place where God will dwell in the middle of the camp with his people. Uh, the tabernacle is surrounded by something, right? What's it surrounded by? Uh, it's surrounded by the tribes, but there's something between the tribes and the tabernacle. There's a fence. There's a curtain. And I asked my kids, why is that curtain there? And they said, to keep the people out. Yes, but it's also to do something else. What is it doing? It's protecting the people. It's actually keeping God from physically seeing the sinful people around him. Now, of course, we know God is omniscient, but it's a demonstration that if he dwelt with them without any protections, he would just have to destroy them because of their sin. So they set up these protections around the, the place of dwelling of God. And there's all these laws about how to rightly approach God so that he can dwell with them. And of course, that is expanded uh, with the, the temple when they get into the promised land. First Kings 6, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. Did you hear the contingency in there? If what? They'll obey the laws. So this... Uh, rest restoration of dwelling is, is contingent on more and more laws to try to keep their, their holiness able to dwell with God. And the whole sacrificial system, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute. 
this type of temple uh, is in contrast to something that happens early on in human history, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Uh, there's an element of false worship there, Tower of Babel, but in Genesis 11, uh, they're trying to get back to this dwelling place with God. They tell us why they're building this tower. Verse 4, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top, where? In the heavens. They're trying to get back to being with God. And we also see other sins there. We'll get back to that in a minute here. So God is continuing to make promises, and he promises that he will again dwell with his people. Uh, that has changed with the fall, but he's promising that this will be, come, come back to the way it's supposed to be. We'll see that continue to develop. Man's script here is there's still the image of God. On, the other, on this side of sin, uh, on this side of judgment, is there still the image of God? Is, does man still bear the image of God? Yes. How do we know that? Genesis 9. Genesis 9. So right after the flood, God reiterates his expectation for people. He gives them an additional law, uh, actually about capital murder. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This side of the fall, this side of sin, God still looks at us and says, we are made in his image. Uh, that is, is a good thing. That is a, a comforting truth. Uh, James repeats that. James chapter 3, talking about our tongue, which I think we'll do in a couple days. With it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. We still retain the image of God. Uh, remember that picture I had up there yesterday of the Grand Tetons. Uh, if, if we're like the image of God... We, we still show kind of who God is. Like that picture shows who the Teton, what the Tetons look like, but it's, it's a tarnished picture. It's, it's wrinkled now. It's maybe torn in a few places, and the coloring is, is off. But it still shows, it still has that faint remaining uh, image of what it's supposed to show. Uh, this is an individual thing. Uh, but then also, after the fall, we get into people groups. We get into nations. Uh, we get into Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, the, the people start spreading out. We get into a tower of Babel where they did not want to spread over the whole earth. And so God comes in and, and judges them and makes them spread over the whole earth. And now we have these people groups. And this is another way that God is glorified in his diversity. He is saying, this is this people group and this is this people group and they're not the same. And then he chooses one of those people groups out of there, not because of their own goodness, but just to display his kindness and his grace to them. He chooses Abraham's family, which we talked about in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, but this is, uh, this is not something that is kind of like plan B. Uh, if we go ahead to Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul is preaching and he says, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. God is the one who has created these people groups. It's, it's not uh, a corruption that happens after sin. Uh, chronologically it happens after sin, but it's God's design that he creates these people groups. And uh, like I said yesterday, I, I don't pretend to have all the answers to try to speak to everything right now, but the, 
the racial tensions that, that we find in our world today, some of the ideas at play there suggest that uh, these distinctions are a problem, these differences uh, are a problem, or that this people group has this, or this people group has that, or that, that you were created in, in that people group, you were born and raised, is something that uh, comes with a type of inherited guilt. Can't speak to all of that, but Acts 17 tells us who created these people groups, who decided where they're supposed to live, who decided who is in each of those people groups, is God. Uh, and it's part of his good design. Now, of course, sin corrupts all those. We see all of the bad things that come from treating people that are different from us poorly or like they're less than human. Uh, and that's a very significant, very real thing. Uh, but God's original design of creating these groups is not the problem. Uh, there's a promise even in that. Isaiah 2 tells us... Nope, that's not what I was trying to read. Yeah, yeah, it is. There it is. Isaiah 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days, the mountain the house of the Lord shall be established, and all the nations shall flow to it. There is indication he's creating these things, spreading them out, but they will be brought together in the end. We have the chosen people of Israel. It's a part of that, uh, but it is, is not, just, not just for the chosen people. Okay, so man's still in the image of God. Man still is going to um, fill the earth a little bit. Babel, at the Tower of Babel, man is being spread out, but it's not going to be complete. It's going to be frustrated at the same time. There is an indication, uh, a little bit of a restored dominion mandate with the people of Israel being given a land that they're supposed to fill and tend and keep and make healthy and grow again. Um, man's responsibility to obey is corrupted. God gives them the law to, to help them, give them more specific ideas, at least as people of Israel, the law, more specific commands to try to stay on the, the straight and narrow path, if you will. Uh, but it doesn't go well. We read in Genesis 6, Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Even when you add the law, Joshua said at the end of his time, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. And we read at the end of the book of Judges, even though these people had the law, they were told exactly how to obey God. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So man continues to not obey, even though they have more and more laws that show them how to do that. Worship, they're given specific commands how to worship in Israel. The temple worship, do these sacrifices, say these things, the priests need to dress like this. Uh, I think there is genuine worship that happens in here. We, we read of many of the Psalms of David. Uh, there is genuine worship that happens, but it's still marked by sin. It, it looks forward to the restoration of all things, but still marked by sin. All right, let's finish up here. Let's follow these threads a little bit more, and then we'll be done with this, looking ahead tomorrow to the beginning of it coming back together. 
the garden. How do we see the garden in this passage, in, in this stage of the story? Obviously, we see Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. Is there anything else that has to do with, with garden after the fall? It's closed to us. So now where, where are Adam and Eve sent? Sent opposite of the garden. They're supposed to now live in the wilderness. What happens to Israel when they come out of Egypt? Where do they go? They spend 40 years in the wilderness before they go where? To the promised land, which is the land flowing with milk and honey. It's again kind of this garden idea. There's going to be a restoration of this place for you. But they go through the wilderness first. Okay, Uh, temple. We talked about that. Temple, tabernacle is God's provision at this time for a temporary, very much conditioned dwelling again with man. Um, What about the tree? Saw in the garden, specific examples of trees, part of God's provision, but also a choice they had to make, a tree that they had to choose to eat from that would bring life or a tree that would bring death. Out of the garden, any tree ideas out there? Is that a question you've ever asked before? Any tree ideas out there? Okay, a branch being grafted in. Okay, that's an idea. Let me hold on that one a minute. I heard another one over here. A serpent in the wilderness. What was a serpent on? Lifted up on a pole in the wilderness. Yes, very good. Any, any other tree thoughts out there? Psalm 1. He shall be like a tree. Who shall be like that? The blessed man, the one who hears God's words, right? Who listens to God will be like a tree himself that produces life. It's a really good one. There's another one back here. Okay. Yes. Too far ahead. Sorry. You're a couple days ahead. There is something else coming. Yes. Was there any other ones? Okay. There's a family tree of Abraham. Um, Yeah. We normally think of it that way. I don't know if I can connect that. Sorry. There is a law about trees. Yes. Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree, Deuteronomy 21. One more thing, tree-wise, I want to get to before we move on, has to do with the family of Jesse. Yes. Where is this here? In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. The root and then the shoot of Jesse, a prophecy that these things coming together is going to come from this family of Jesse. Uh, It's significant that he's described as both the root and then the shoot of Jesse. Okay, next one, food. Anything that has to do with food. They were provided with everything they needed in the garden. They chose to take of it or not. The feasts. Israel had lots of different scheduled holidays, and they all resolve, revolve around food. They're festival holidays, yes. Manna. Why did Israel need manna? 
They're in the wilderness, and God was still providing for them. What did they have to do, though? They had to go gather it. Now, it's significant that God, in his provision, doesn't just say, okay, you're in the wilderness, I'm just going to automatically insert all the nutrients that your body will need for the next 40 years into your body, and you just don't have to do anything. Or I'm just going to make your body work without need of any type of fuel or calories or anything like that. He could have done that. But what did he do? No, he provided something, but they had to go and pick it up. They had to respond to this offer. They had to respond to this provision and go and take it. Excuse me? I'm sorry? It wasn't socialism, capitalism? Uh, Okay. (laughs) I don't think you're wrong, but we're not going to go there. Um, So there's manna and quail provided in the wilderness. Uh, What is one of the main feasts of Israel? Started in the book of Exodus, Passover. They had to eat certain foods. They had to eat food that was not tainted by yeast. They had to kill what? A lamb. Clean, laws about food, clean and unclean food. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite passages, probably many of you too, Psalm 23 ends with, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Prepare a table, it's provision. You provided everything that I need. I'll throw this little nugget out there. You're probably not thinking about this. When Boaz and Ruth first meet, they have a meal together. And it's the first sign of Boaz offering the opportunity for him to redeem her. A provision that he is offering, and then he waits for her to respond to. It's a... a, a proto-wedding proposal. Clothing. What happens with clothing? Mr. Vince kind of already went there. What happens after sin? They were in their innocence. They were unclothed. They tried to cover themselves. Then, Then what happens? God covers them with skins. Skins of something we don't know specifically, but an animal had to shed his blood for that. Uh, There's another really cool part of the story here. If you go all the way to the book of Zechariah, there's a a vision of a priest named Joshua standing before God, and he's clothed in dirty clothes. And the angel says to him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. It's a vision of of things to come. Uh, But the idea is there's there's this possibility for us to take off all of this sin that we are clothed in and be clothed in something else. Okay, a few more here. Marriage. Uh, Old Testament is full of, of love stories of people finding finding their wives, Isaac and Rebecca, uh, Jacob and then Leah and Rachel, Boaz and Ruth, which I already mentioned. Um, let me throw this out for a minute and we'll, we'll get to it later. Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob. Notice how often they find their wife at a well. Keep pin that, keep that for later. Um, 
Israel themselves, as described throughout many of the prophecies, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, many times as the bride of Jehovah, the bride of God. Uh, Isaiah 62, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Speaking of the people of Israel. So his chosen people that he has brought out, he said, he wants to dwell with them. He speaks of them in terms of a bride. And of course, we have the Song of Solomon, uh, uh, a specific meditation on uh, an actual marriage that highlights the goodness of, of married love. Okay, a few new threads as we go. We're talking about a serpent now. You know of any other serpents, Old Testament? Serpent on the pole? Mm-hmm. Sir? Aaron's rod became what? A serpent, and then did what? Ate the other serpents. Uh, Egyptian people worshipped serpents. What did Pharaoh have on his head? He had a serpent on his head. They worshipped part of his deity. They attributed his deity to the worship of this, this serpent god. And uh, Aaron's serpent swallowed up all of their serpent staffs. Later on, when the, the seas are split, same words, the whole army of Pharaoh was then swallowed up by the waters. Um, serpent on the head, and then that, that leader of Israel and his son, who was the next head of Israel, serpent on the head, head of the serpent, crushed, right? Is that insignificant? No. Uh, that's a sign of things to come. Uh, there are many other things like that. Um, some of the same wording, same of the same styles of, of talking about things are used even when you talk about the Philistines and uh, and what's his name, Goliath. Talks about all the scaly armor that he wore, and where was he struck? He was struck on the head, and then his head was chopped off. How many times is God's enemies struck on the head? Yeah, uh, Abimelech had the thing dropped on his head. Where did Jael hammer something into the head? Um, interesting little pattern. Uh, you see God's enemies described in serpent terms, and then their heads are crushed. The prophecy about, about uh, from Balaam, Numbers 24, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of it, it shall crush the forehead of Moab. Okay, we're going to follow lamb and blood now. Obviously, the skins that Adam and Eve were wearing don't come from just anywhere. They came from a dead animal. Abraham and Isaac, we see this play on uh, a substitutionary lamb being killed in place of someone else. See the whole sacrificial system, the Day of Atonement. The blood that was offered covered their sins so God could stay in their camp. It covered their sins temporarily, had to do it every year, year after year. One more thread I want to ask you to pay attention to as we keep going. Uh, we will have cities now. Uh, and this is another part of the story where we individually have this relationship with God and then also in groups, in marriages, in people groups, in nations. Cities are this collection of people, and it often comes with a negative connotation. What are the first cities that we hear of? Sodom and Gomorrah. Even before that, we get to the Tower of Babel. They, they were a city because they weren't spreading out. And we get to Sodom and Gomorrah, 
Babylon later on, um, collections of sin. Sorry? Nineveh, yes, Nineveh. On the other hand, there are good representations of that. Bethlehem, Jerusalem, the city of peace. Um, so it's, it's not sinful to live in a city. It's not that people only live in a city because they're gathering together to sin, and therefore rural people are more righteous. I live in the country. It's not what it's saying. Uh, just something to pay attention to. All right, this has been probably the most we'll be talking about. It's going to get a little bit lighter as we go on. We've had a lot to cover this morning. Um, but the question uh, remains, uh, we, we, we saw chapter one, we saw the before, now we're seeing kind of the after situation. Everything has changed. Um, the question remains, how is God going to make me whole? That's something Steve will continue to speak to uh, tonight throughout the week, and something we'll keep developing throughout the mornings. Uh, if you want to do some additional follow-up, those the study guides Pastor Matt handed out, uh, those are just for this, this time period after our morning sessions um, to, to just talk about what we're going through now, a little bit different than your family devotions. Uh, but let's, let's pray, and then we'll be done. God, we thank you for our time this morning. Uh, we uh, are, are, are saddened, we're grieved by how the world has changed because of our sin. Uh, we do not like sin and death that it brings, uh, but we must confess it's our fault. Uh, God, we pray that as we look at this, you help us to see who we are, how we behave, understand our sin better, even today, uh, and that you will help us to, to change and grow and give us hope for how you are going to change us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.